0: Namo tasabh goa to arahatu sama sam buddhasam Namo tasabh goa arahatu sama sam buddhasam Namo tasabh arahatu sama sam buddhasam buddhaṃ And this being the first Sunday of the month, it's the occasion when we take a look at the Dhamma teaching offered on the page of our Forest Anchor calendar for this month, which uh, is a, another extract from teachings by Ajahn Chah. Uh, there's a nice photograph there of Ajahn V sweeping the snow of his steps in his kuti up in Canada, and the teaching says it is as if the Buddha has placed us at the beginning of the path. His job is now done. Whether we walk along it or not is up to us. all of us will have had our interest in the possibility of walking this path quickened uh, probably some time ago now and that's why we're here, that's why we're paying attention to these teachings. Uh, Uh, Hearing about the path, hearing about the possibility of the goal, stimulated interest in this possibility Mm. and probably most of us have been around uh, putting effort into this journey to have arrived at uh, an appreciation of how there are times when the journey is really wonderful Mm. and full of gratitude and feel so fortunate and and why isn't everybody doing this this is just such a good fortune and and yet there are other times when we think oh god why did I ever start out on this journey and how bad can it get how much longer can I carry on so you know, seriously heartbreakingly difficult and, It can appear to be an excruciating, unending ordeal. Mm. Mm. Both perspectives can feel very real. So if we're alert to these possibilities, and and, and it's an understandable question to ask, uh, how should I or how can I uh, wisely prepare myself uh, for this journey? Uh, hmm. It's as if the Buddha has placed us at the beginning of the path. Yeah. His job is now done. Whether we walk along it or not is up to us, mm-hmm. as Ajahn Chah points out. Yeah. So we, we, we've had our interest triggered and we want to walk this journey, how can we wisely prepare ourselves for it? And even if we're going for a walk in the lovely English countryside on a Sunday afternoon, as perhaps some of you did this afternoon, we still give some thought to preparation. Maybe wear the right sort of clothing and and so put a decent jacket on have a, maybe even have a scarf and a hat and a bottle of water and um. so if we prepare ourselves for something as minor as that, well the great journey of life or the great journey of awakening certainly calls for some careful consideration. Mm. I would have thought. Okay. There are these possibilities of great joy, but also excruciatingly difficult challenges. So one of the sensible things we can do is is listen to what those who have taken the journey ahead of us have to say about how it might go. You know, afford ourselves the the uh, the benefit of uh, the experience of others, you know, the Buddha himself, uh, his journey, and uh, the awakened teachers who, who have walked ahead of us so, to uh, benefit from their experience. And there's a there's a verse in the Dhammapada, verse seventy six, which says, "Only blessings can arise from seeking the company of." wise and discerning persons who skillfully offer both admonition and advice as if guiding us to hidden treasure. So we've been inspired to walk this journey and trust that there is the treasure of the goal of freedom from suffering. So listening to those who have walked ahead of us Heeding their counsel, that's sensible. Mm-hmm. We're not just naively heading out and hoping it's all going to turn out okay. Well, you know, we can do that. Mm-hmm. But if we mm-hmm. are really mm-hmm. unfortunate and having too much naivety, then mm-hmm. we perhaps trip at the first hurdle. and so. On. You know, when things don't turn out as we expected and we get indignant and think, well, it shouldn't be this way. You know? yeah. Well, often, <laughs> I'm sure all of us know, feel like it shouldn't be this way, but when it is this way, the point is, what do we do about it? You know, what do we do about it? And you know, if it's uh, like really gritty, really hard work, and just thinking it shouldn't be this way, doesn't really help. In fact, that's one of the great lessons that we can learn from listening to those who've walked the path ahead of us, that when it's difficult, we it's wise to accept this is difficult, you know, not to default to saying it shouldn't be this way and and allowing ourselves to dwell on, uh, on how it used to be. And, uh, you know, I can remember the first few months of my life as a a novice monk in Bangkok, which were definitely not how I thought it was going to be, and uh, certainly not how I wanted it to be, and I I wrote to my friends who were still living on a commune in northern New South Wales in Australia, and asked for some of the books that I was reading at the time. I I was desperate to, to get inspired again. I really missed the inspiration. I wasn't dealing with what I was uh, confronted with um, very well at all and that didn't help harking back to how it used to be how we think it should be doesn't help Mm. when it's really difficult it's wise to make the effort to accept this is what it's like when it's difficult Mm. Like at the moment, this is November and we had our first frost today and the trees have definitely turned, the leaves are definitely disappearing and uh, we've got the winter ahead of us and uh, how helpful would it be to be wishing for the blossoms on the trees and and beautiful spring mornings. That wouldn't be clever, That, that wouldn't help. This is what it's like in autumn and soon it'll be winter. And on that level, we learn to accord with the seasons. Well, the seasons of our hearts, and when the moods fluctuate and practice takes a turn and dire- a direction we weren't perhaps expecting, then can we accord with it? Do we have what it takes? So preparing ourselves for this journey, paying attention in advance to some of the skills that are really worth cultivating. Like this interest that I m- mentioned in the beginning. Yeah. When we first come across the teachings and our interest is quickened and, and yeah. Yeah. energy, direction comes from that. It was interest that inspired the Buddha to set out on his journey in pursuit of what he eventually arrived at which we call as awakening or enlightenment yeah. which gave rise to yeah. the teachings that we're 2,600 and something years later still benefiting from
1: yeah.
0: the Buddha was interested yeah. Yeah. is there anything else besides this yeah. uh, things have been pretty good we're told up until that point he was being born into a position of privilege and as a prince in a, in a kingdom and was set to become the ruler eventually and everything was going in a great direction until uh, some of the the veils of delusion that distract us when we're still very young uh, started to fall away and around the age of 29 he he caught a glimpse of what he had ahead of him old age sickness and death and and distraction that he had been occupied with happened to that point it wasn't working anymore and and so the great question arose, is there anything else? He got interested in not just pleasure which he had been interested in but now he was interested in suffering and the reality of suffering. Now, now that wasn't, probably wasn't a particularly cool thing to be interested in it wasn't what his father had in mind for him. He, we wanted them to go in the direction of just becoming a, the ruler of the kingdom. and But you know, what the, the Buddha-to-be became interested in was, what is the reality? What is the reality of this business that we're involved in, this life? You know, all the fun, all the goodness, all the joy, all the delight, that friendship and comfort and convenience can bring, we stand to lose it all and we disintegrate and and what we have left is old age which is painful and unpleasant and difficult sickness which is painful, unpleasant and difficult and then death which is probably not much fun Um, so the Buddha Buddha's mind giving rise to its interest is significant and likewise for us The interest that inspires us as we begin on this path uh, is worth really making conscious and remembering it. Maybe even making taking notes of it. What is it that interests us? What is it that helps inspire us so that our mind turns away from the current of pursuing gratification of desire, thinking that that's going to really give us contentment? What is it that gives rise to the interest that means we look in a different direction. Instead of looking out there, thinking that when we just get one more moment of of happiness, it'll become permanent. And we turn around and start looking at the source of the suffering, the reality of the suffering. And as we start to see beyond the stories, the stories of the world, the stories the Buddha had been told up until that point was... Uh, get married have a family become successful and he'd done all that and become powerful and he was probably moving into that and and then it stopped working he saw through the story and became disillusioned and, well likewise uh, interest in the path uh, interest in the journey interest in the possibility of the goal if it is quickened is uh, something really to value to Really, make conscious, and and to likewise to to direct that interest to see through the stories, to see for us, you know, to see through the materialistic story, Mm. the capitalist story, Mm. the communist story, the Christian story, Mm. whatever story that we've bought into. Now we need to be careful that we don't just buy into a buddhist story we can uh, plenty of stories uh, uh, in the buddhist circles these days that we could be believing in and uh, substituting
1: uh,
0: for real practice a uh, real practice that the buddha wanted us to get interested in was what is this experience of dissatisfaction of disappointment What is really going on? Is this ultimate? Is there an alternative? Is this an obligation? Well, the Buddha's great discovery, as we all know, was that this suffering is not an obligation. It's not ultimate. There is the possibility of realization of freedom. So learning to see through these stories, to not not idealistically reject the stories, but to inquire into them and... So the Buddha's teaching was aimed at encouraging us, inspiring us, energising us, giving us direction, you know, finding out where our resources are. How do, we, how do we turn away from the stories and look into that which is real and hopefully discover true benefit for oneself and for others? Or well, we can notice in our daily life when we get really interested in something, how much energy we can have for that, how much direction how much concentration, how much focus we can have you know, you know. I get distracted for hours through <coughs> certain periods in the year when I'm I'm working on producing this, this calendar that we're commenting on tonight you know, and probably some of you will know that we we produce this calendar every year here and and when it's the time to select the photographs that have been contributed from our various monasteries around the world, I can spend hours in front of the screen, in front of the computer, you
1: know, uh,
0: cropping and converting and adjusting. And, and that's just the photos. And then also uh, locating a suitable dhamma quote that works with the, the images. It's a, it's a riveting thing to be involved in and it's very easy to be interested in and when there is interest there's lots of energy, lots of direction lots of focus well if we can find ways of skillfully stimulating that interest in reality it makes a big difference so the Buddha's teaching aimed very much at stimulating this kind of interest and Having confidence, you know, confidence as well as interest. Confidence is really precious. Confidence or trust or faith, when it is established in our hearts and in our minds, it's it's an aspect of the treasure. It's not the ultimate treasure, it's not the goal. But on the journey, it's like the fuel. We need trust, you know. Mm. like trust in daily life. Mm. See, we're trusting all the time. We trust in all sorts of things. We trust the chair that we sit on and we trust that the car is going to start when we get into it. We, yeah. or, you know, trust in money. I mean, what is money really? You've got a piece of plastic or a bit of paper and you hand it over and you trust that the person you're giving it to is going to agree with you. This is worth something. It's Actually just a rather unpleasant feeling piece of plastic, but there's an agreed trust that it means something and or well, the money market and look what happens when look what happens when trust in what people are assuming about the money market gets damaged the market can collapse with huge consequences The only thing that's changed is people's trust. Well, that's true on a materialist level. What's it like on the heart level? And so trusting in the goal and the path that the Buddha taught about is really precious. It's really... Like interest, once it's triggered, it's really worth making conscious and caring for. Not to let ourselves get too busy, not to let ourselves get too stressed, too tired, too overwhelmed, too distracted, too lost. Sometimes uh, life can be really exciting, lots of stimulating company and fun things happening and that's understandable and part of being a human being and friends come to visit we get excited, we talk a lot and get activated and energised but can we do that without getting lost in the excitement Mm. or without getting too lost, we're all going to get a little bit lost but as long as we only get a little bit lost we can find our way back again and hopefully right practice means that we find our way back again quicker Mm not just with the excitement, but also with the sadness and the sorrow and, and the bone-breaking struggle that we sometimes challenge to deal with. Maybe for a while we get somewhat lost in it, but let's be careful that we don't get so lost that we lose our faith, that we lose our trust, lose our confidence, and we protect this quality of trust and trust confidence once it's arisen in our hearts and minds and find ways of protecting it so trust in the goal, trust in the path and also trust in ourselves yeah. and one of the reasons that the Buddha gave great emphasis to the cultivation of uh, impeccability, you know, the teachings on developing sila and precepts and is for the purpose of establishing and sustaining self confidence. Self doubt is a terrible disease when we doubt ourselves, and often self doubt arises because we've been compromising integrity, we've been telling ourselves lies, or being deceitful on some level. And we may not want it to be that way, we may not think it should be that way, but it will be that way when we compromise. Integrity and dishonest, the natural result is a lack of self confidence, a lack of self respect. Now, that lack of self confidence we may compensate by putting up a stronger exterior front and get fueled by exterior increased rigid confidence and bravado. That can happen, but it's not an authentic, sustainable, genuine. Level of confidence, the confidence and trust that comes with self-respect is again a treasure and something really to take care of. Mm-hmm. When Venerable Ananda asked the Lord Buddha, you know, "What is the point of uh, developing sīla?" The, the Buddha replied, uh, uh, "Freedom from remorse." Mm-hmm. When the heart is free from remorse, when the mind is free from remorse, yeah. what's there in its place? Yeah. 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 Ease and confidence. Yeah. Now, sometimes I know that's not necessarily the case because if we have the misfortune of having been taught some uh, stories in our early life, which means that we define ourselves as, as damaged, as inherently bad, you know, if we're told that when we're little people, we can end up believing it, and that's very unfortunate, but sadly it does happen, and so there can be this this loop going around in our heads that that we're no good, that we're bad people, even though we are actually keeping precepts. We've got this lie going on, even unconscious lie going on in our heads, that there's something inherently wrong with us, and... So it's still the story that we're telling ourselves, but it's, it's perhaps a little bit more subtle and more difficult to discern. But finding the way to establish self-respect, self-trust, self-confidence, is an important skill on this journey, very important skill. And in this regard, the use of form, use of rituals, can be very skillful, can be very helpful, Forms, religious forms, they they help give us a connection with the spirit. They can help give a, dir- a direction to the spirit. And the spirit of trust might be alive within us, but we may not have a conscious connection to it. We may have an intuition of the validity of the path of practice, but not really be able to feel we can connect with it in a conscious way yeah, and this is what some of the religious forms and conventions are for yeah. bowing chanting yeah. ritual offerings and, you know, from a rational perspective you can make a good argument why not to do these things but it's been my experience that they can be really significant yeah, yeah a couple of times immediately come to my mind when I found benefit, and one was when my my mother and father were visiting from New Zealand, which was quite a big deal, you know, coming from the other side of the planet, the first time they were meeting my teacher, Ajahn Sumato, and visiting the monastery, and what happens, my father has a brain hemorrhage, that wasn't expected, that wasn't planned, it was very distressing for my mother, and so he's in the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead, and with his head shaved, wearing a white gown, looking like an Anagarika, having brain surgery, and it wasn't quite how we planned it, and yeah. very difficult period. And uh, I was out trying to look after my mother and trying to meditate. I remember one evening trying to meditate, and it really wasn't working very well. But I could do some chanting. Yeah. I think on that occasion I was chanting the Dham- Sutta and, you know. That form, when I look back now,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. a valid way of getting access to something sustaining, something deeper. Another occasion when I put myself on retreat for two months, the winter retreat and, and in and Again, uh, I remember using the... the traditional form of bowing to considerable benefit And I thought at the time before I put myself on the retreat that I was uh, getting a few things sorted in my practice and, and just a little bit more intensity would do me some good. And this is about you know, 20 something, 25 years ago, something like that and and I uh, so I uh, shut myself in this <laughs> very small room in the attic of Chitur's house along with the the hot water tanks up there, and and put some paper over the window so I couldn't get distracted by what was going outside. So got some light, but couldn't see anything, and and the there was plenty of intensity. And uh, I quickly discovered that I didn't have things sorted as well as I thought I did, and it was very hard work. Those two months were very, very hard work. And at one stage, I, I uh, yeah it looked like actually I was losing the plot and it coincided with a, a hurricane passing through and a very serious storm and And uh, I, uh, I thought I caused it. Uh, the internal chaos uh, was so intense that I uh, thought that it was me that had brought about this hurricane that was sweeping through England and creating quite a bit of damage and it was so severe that I, I remember breaking my vow of silence and and asking somebody, I would come out of my room for the fortnightly recitation of the Patimoka rule, and, and, yeah. uh, and I also would come out during morning chanting, to, when there was nobody else around, just to empty my slot bucket. On and, mm-hmm. and one of these occasions, when I came out of my room, I asked somebody whether anybody had been killed as a result of this hurricane, because I, I thought I'd caused it, and thankfully it didn't seem like anybody was killed, so it made it more tolerable, but... Well, there was another period during that retreat when I remember I just was so uncertain about everything. And, and I was just sitting in front of my shrine there and, and just bowing. And I didn't even know why I was bowing. Why was I bowing? But I started to think about it and I couldn't see the point in it. But considering that and looking back at that form of bowing, these traditional forms and rituals they they have a point to them. Mm. Human beings haven't been using these conventions for these millennia because they're pointless. Mm. There's a point to them. And they if used mindfully, skillfully, they can serve to connect us with the spirit uh, that is not necessarily so easy to Recognize, in this case, the spirit of confidence and trust that there is a path, that there is a goal. It is worth walking along this path. Mm. So, also, mm. disciplining the place of disciplined attention. Mm. We can have inspiration and Interest and confidence and trust. We also need a decent dose of discipline, disciplined attention. If we look at the Buddha before his enlightenment, you can see the years and the amount of extraordinary effort that that he put into disciplining his faculties, cultivating the ability to steady his attention, to steady his mind to find tranquility, to find inner ease and clarity and calm. Mm -hmm. Now, those teachers and teachings and uh, effort that he put in in those early years, it's true, they didn't uh, satisfy his interest.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But let's not ignore all those years and the intensity of effort it's not as if the Buddha to be came out and found a bodhi tree and sat under it and waited for uh, enlightenment to strike that's not what happened Mm -hmm. and so the exercise in in disciplining attention one reason why it's sensible to heed the example and the advice and, of our teachers and those who have walked the journey before us is, is because it can be really boring, mm. Mm. disciplining attention,
1: mm.
0: really tedious, yeah. like learning to use mm. a piece of uh, equipment yeah. or play a musical instrument in the beginning, we all know what it's like, and repetition is not rivetingly interesting. It's tedious often, yeah. but it pays off. Yeah. Probably, all of us by this stage of life will have had some experience of the benefits of investing in cultivating mm. the discipline of attention mm. whether it's counting the breathing or doing body sweeping or mm. disciplining the mind to stay focused on a theme like that of loving kindness or compassion or mm. bringing the attention back to the sound of silence over and over again whatever the form Around which we exercise this discipline, yeah. the effort we put into it to begin again, to begin again, yeah. to learn how to begin again graciously. Now, in the beginning, when the mind wanders, we probably get judgmental and self-critical, and, we, and hopefully we learn, well, that doesn't help. And so, yes, the mind still wanders, but maybe we start to get the message that when we remember, oh, that's something to feel good about. Well, that's good. I remember that you know, the mind wandered, and so we're glad that we've remembered instead of critical and judgmental. And begin again gladly instead of beginning again with self-criticism and resentment. Yeah. Yeah. So we purify the effort that we make and become more skilled. And, but it can still be tedious and boring. Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning your teeth is never generally particularly interesting. Yeah. Getting a cold and recovering from it is, generally speaking, not particularly interesting. But there's aspects of life that are like that. And mm. as we go through life, hopefully we get the message that being addicted to the excitement mm. of interest and inspiration is not skillful. Mm. There is a place for mm. careful, sensitive disciplining of attention and And then when we experience the benefit of it, to register that, to notice. Oh, look, that's where that came from. I thought my practice was not getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. A good friend of mine recently mentioned to me how they had been uh, for um, medical examination and it was uh, to see an oncologist and uh, that's, uh, generally speaking, not good news and this was the second visit, Uh, he and I about the same age, and he'd been to see the the oncologist because the blood tests uh, showed the particular uh, indicators had risen above the acceptable level, and so he needed to come back for a second set of tests, and so he went back uh, for the results of the second set of tests, and doctor uh, opened the file and told him, well, good news, these indicators are back to normal again, nothing to worry about. And he commented that how delightfully surprised he was that nothing much happened. Mm. Mm. Part of him had thought that he would jump up and down with delight and relief and be over the moon with happiness that he didn't have a terminal prognosis. Mm. It was quite realistic, quite possibly could have, but nothing much happened. And at that point he goes, all right, that's all this practice over the years. Mm. You don't necessarily see at the time that we're uh, exercising the discipline of attention where the benefits come, but Mm. in moments like that we feel really grateful so we again are wise and sensible to prepare ourselves with this particular skill and and to uh, accept that we don't know what life is going to offer us or maybe even throw at us like that painting down the back of the Dhamma Hall here uh, the Buddha uh, under the Bodhi tree In pursuit of liberation, and Mara is throwing everything at him—spears and arrows, coming and uh, trying to intimidate him and distract him from his pursuit of liberation. uh, It's—it's a good reminder. We don't know what life is going to offer us, or is going to uh, throw at us, or challenge us. So, uh, we need uh, the benefits of stability, Mm -hmm. of energy that come with disciplined attention. Another aspect of that discipline is agility. When it's skillful discipline, it's agile. It's not rigid. When discipline is too rigid, then we don't know how to accord with changing circumstances. So agility is another theme worth reflecting on and preparing ourselves for walking along this path. Focus and concentration and energy, yes, you know, all those things, but also to remember agility, gentleness, or in other words creativity, how to adjust according to time and place. Very early on in Now, acquainting ourselves with the Buddha's teachings, we probably come across the Buddha's teachings on the four right efforts. Not just making effort, but there's four right efforts. Which effort is called for right now? The effort to sustain already arisen, wholesome states of mind. The effort to give rise to as yet unarisen, wholesome states of mind. The effort to get rid of already arisen unwholesome states of mind, the effort to avoid the arising of as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind,
1: yeah. these are
0: all different kinds of effort, like like if you 're doing yoga, yeah. what sort of effort do we put into it? You know,
1: yeah.
0: feeling our feet on the ground, are we grounded, are we anchored, or are we all up in our heads yeah. Yeah. Where are we in our belly? Yeah. Where are we in our neck? Mm-hmm. Where do we place effort? How do we place effort? Or also the classic teachings of the four foundations of mindfulness.
1: Yeah.
0: Mindfulness of body. Mindfulness of feelings. Mindfulness of awareness itself. Mindfulness of mind states. Yeah. Now with agility and when what's called for is shifting the direction or the quality Mm. of effort Mm. we're able to do it we're not holding rigidly to a fixed position and this is tremendously important sometimes our inspiration the spiritual journey can be such that we become intoxicated by it and and, uh, Unexpectedly, all this unlived emotional content bursts through in our meditation, and we become possessed with anxiety or anger or rage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we're not agile, maybe we just keep forcing ourselves to set meditation, thinking that by concentrating on our meditation object, we're going to overcome this obstruction. I mean, but Actually what's cured for is you know, getting up and doing some walking,
1: yeah.
0: or maybe even going jogging. You know, maybe've got so much energy that you need to stop even doing formal meditation.
1: Yeah.
0: Definitely can be a time for that. You know, some of the obstructions you know, start to feel challenged and then there's a backlash and have this upthrust of wild energy. How do we meet it? How do we accord with it? Well, we need to be agile, flexible, creative, considerate. Mm-hmm. A feeling kind of awareness that means that we can accord with that which is challenging us. Mm-hmm. As I said, maybe what's called for us is to stop meditating. And For a lot of people, sitting, formal meditation is not really helpful. Mm-hmm. What works is sitting and listening to a Dhamma talk. I mean, these days you don't have to cross mountains and go through malaria-infested jungles to reach a temple and listen to a Dhamma talk. You can just do a search and download something and right there you can listen to a Dhamma talk. And Sitting quietly, listening to a Dhamma talk for 20 minutes every day is a very good form of meditation and perhaps more suitable than trying to force the mind to be quiet. Or sometimes talking is what's called for. So if we have agility, we can sense in the whole body-mind where do we need to be directing our energy of interest and being free from suffering Mm -hmm. and when there's agility and discipline of attention together then it gives us a sense of balance Mm -hmm. according to time and place we can make adjustments and we can trust ourselves Mm -hmm. and when I think back um, over my years in on this journey and the the things that have really helped me most, things that have really benefited me most. Of course, I immediately recall the, the profound teachers and talks that I've had the good fortune to be able to listen to. But very close next to that, I can also recall... Many more actually exceedingly boring talks. Very boring talks. Just, just desperately wanting them to end and get out of there. You know, I don't mind forgetting those. What I definitely don't want to forget is the, the warm-heartedness of my teachers. Yeah. Yeah. That really makes a difference.
1: Yeah.
0: The, the quality of kindness and caring that I remember receiving. Sometimes in periods of very feeling, when I was feeling intensely challenged. And a very simple, pure, human warm-heartedness made a world of difference. One of the first monasteries I lived in, in in Bangkok, Uh, the abbot of that monastery was the uh, Supreme Patriarch of Buddhism in Thailand, like number one, uh, very significant and important monk. He was the teacher of the King of Thailand, the King of Thailand in fact ordained in that monastery, Somdet Sangwon. he's since passed away and he was my first preceptor and Part of my time staying in that monastery, I was so intensely distressed I, I really, really, really wondered how I could possibly carry on. I was so confused, so distressed and and he had time for me and when I think of it now i, I don't really don 't know how he did it i mean, and what yeah it was just, it's just it 's really extraordinary to think that you know if he wasn 't going out somewhere and officiating at some important ceremony he was being visited by the most senior monks and around Thailand and royalty and military generals and and yet he had time for me. Not only did he have time to see me, but he he, uh, he even invited me in the evening I was invited into his private meditation room upstairs in his in his accommodation. He had his own small building there in this in this great big monastery in the middle of Bangkok and had his private meditation room upstairs which was used by previous abbots for many generations and, and there was nobody else in there but he invited me in there and out of kindness out of compassion made a world of difference and, yeah. I used to arrive there I don't know 8.30 or something in the evening after evening chanting and I'd be sitting in there and he would come in maybe about 9 o'clock and and I never asked him or even never, actually never spoke to him in there, but he would, initially he would come and he would just lean against the wall and I, I imagine he was exhausted after a day of meetings and dealing with complicated, complex situations and, and he would just lean against the wall for a while then after a while he would, he was sitting in cross-legged he would kind of shuffle forward and settle in front of the shrine there and I would leave and he would still be sitting there and... Just that that act of kindness of giving me the space, giving me the company. He also gave me access to one of the big temples, one of the big dhamma halls in the monastery on my own. I could go in there and sit in there. These acts of kindness have a transformative power. Mm -hmm. Being with Ajahn Chah, likewise. I remember talking to him about excruciating doubts that I was suffering from and I just couldn't imagine how I was going to find my way through it and I didn't want to trouble him I didn't want to hassle him another very famous important monk and I didn't want to demand his time and attention but I just couldn't see how I could carry on so I went to see him and again once again that kindness of warm heartedness and Attention and the gaze and listening to my plight, and you know, he didn't say to me, you know, "Well, you know I've had doubts. I toughed them out, so you've got to tough them out too. No, it was nothing like that at all. It was just uh, uh, just the sense of, of care and fully listening, fully receiving this scorny scruffy. Uh, young monk struggling to make sense of life and mm. kindness makes a world of difference yeah. Yeah. inwardly within oneself also socially yeah. the, the way we cooperate together I know living in this monastery here where we have regularly we have people from many different nationalities and how do we cooperate I mean, I don't know, some people, I just... I I live, like, certain nationalities, live with them for years and I still can't understand them. You know, some nationalities, they're like... They never say anything straight. they always beat around the bush. They never actually say what they mean. And then there's others, they're just absolutely straight, definitely no doubt about what they mean, right in your face, gesticulating, throwing their arms all around the place, and you think, what's going on here? How do you make sense of that? And... Then there's other nationalities that apparently they don't like if you compliment them or you don't, you know, if you express appreciation. I've been criticised for expressing too much appreciation, and my view is that, you know, if you want to admonish somebody for getting it wrong, well, you've got to be, you know, also give them a decent dose of appreciation before you criticise them. And and, but uh, some people don't. Some cultures they don't seem to. Go for too much appreciation; they don't trust it. And then there's those cultures which they they never ask for help. They apparently I've been told that they that uh, if you ask for help in their culture in their country, it's seen as a sign of weakness. So whatever's going on, and they they may not know what they're doing, but they won't ask for help. How do you make sense of that? Or manners? I mean, we had one monk living here who he had this habit of reaching in front of other people's face or behaving in ways that by the standards I was used to was very rude and I tried to explain to him you know this thing well you know personal space is not just you know it's not just English or fussy Buddhist monks it's you know, even animals have got a sense of personal space if you invade somebody's space there, there are consequences and you're reaching in front of somebody's face and one or two inches you, you say excuse me and uh, he pointed out to me oh no, well I was brought up he said that manners are just for the bourgeoisie we don't do manners you know, okay <laughs> well um, how do you how, you've got such a mix as that how do you cooperate well, after many years of getting it wrong I, I'm convinced that kindness actually works that even if people don't like kindness you know, even if they distrust it on some level The reality is they'll forgive you if you get it wrong. Because kindness always works. Warm-heartedness always works. It goes beyond what your mind might have been conditioned to be familiar with or comfortable or trust in. The heart always responds to kindness Mm. Mm. with regards to each other and, of course, with regards to ourselves. When we're faced with it difficulties on this journey and we we make a mess of it and we feel like we've failed, if the heart is still warm and gentle and we remember kindness then we can still learn from it. It doesn't mean to say that we're going to suddenly feel great, but we'll keep walking along the path. And if even kindness fails, well there's still one other skill which is tremendously important. If all our other tricks, all our other skills have not somehow managed to lift us up out of whatever it is we feel intensely obstructed by or challenged by, well, there's another skill that the Buddha, he didn't just recommend it, he actually referred to it as ultimate, and that is patient endurance. Patient endurance. The Buddha said it's uh, tapo titika. Yeah. Tapo is, a, is like the fire the word, the tapas it means ascetic practices, but literally it means fires, it means endurance. Endurance. and uh, Titika means ultimate. And It's basically patient endurance, from the Buddha's perspective, is the the ultimate means of transforming. Obstructions. Mm -hmm. And so the Buddha and all the great teachers have said the same thing. Patient endurance is essential. Patient endurance is ultimate. Patient endurance is necessary. We may not be able to access patient endurance immediately and, and often it starts out as like bitter endurance it's like in practice arrogance or stubbornness is the kind of the raw material that as practice progresses we purify our arrogance and stubbornness and they turn into self confidence and determination the raw thing is not necessarily very beautiful bitter endurance is not the real thing it doesn't really work but we start off with bitter endurance and then we you know, sensitively learn from uh, uh, the mistakes we make and then uh, it gets modified little by little until we start discovering what patient endurance is, the, the capacity for bearing with that which is unbearable, yeah. enduring that which is unendurable on an apparent level. We don't know that this suffering is actually unendurable or unbearable it appears that way at times if we remember patient endurance then we perhaps don't say well I'm going to endure this for another week maybe all we can do is say well one more in breath and out breath I'm going to endure this and we find we can and then one more we find we can and then one more, we find we can. Mm. Realistically, practically, we find we can.
1: Mm.
0: And the next thing, mm. we discover that we've, we've moved along the path just a little bit more, mm. and conditions have changed. Mm. We remember our confidence, our trust, Remember that which fuels us along this path, on this journey. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.